Thank you, Natasha. We can just say amen and go home, shouldn't we? <laughs> that could be the sermon. Some of you are probably hoping, wishing that was the sermon. But I came a long ways, so <laughs> let's make use of our time together. Colossians 3. Yes, we're already in Colossians 3, and it's only Wednesday night. Colossians 3 opens with these words. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Okay. We now know Paul's getting to the stuff. Remember when we talked on Sunday, we said that Colossians is written to a people who had demoted Jesus. They were arguing with each other about all kinds of things, and they were behaving badly. Now Paul's about to get to the behavior stuff. Before we get to this stuff, I want to, um, yeah, the questions last night are amazing. I love the fact that first you were listening, and second you're wrestling like Christians have for two millennia now with this issue. When Paul says saving is all his work, we trust him enough to do it. What does that mean? For those of us living in a reward and compensation culture where we get paid and rewarded and promoted for all the good things that we do, we somehow feel like we can actually bring something to the table. Well, I really, I'm not going to resolve it all in the few minutes we have together, but let me just tell you a little story that happened to Jesus. Um, a man, we call him the rich young ruler, which is really a, an amalgamation, like a, a combination of all the titles that all the gospels give him. The rich young ruler, all this synoptic gospels tell the same story, same story. He comes to Jesus and he says this, um, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What's he asking? What must I do? What kind of things can I, what else can I add to the list of things? I'm a good Jewish man. What else can I do to inherit the eternal life that somehow I don't feel quite sure I have? Are you with me? And Jesus immediately recognizes that the question's inappropriate. It's silly, really. Think about it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do you inherit something? Not by doing, it's by being. <laughs> if Micah, my son, one day says, hey, hey, what do I have to do to be your son? Ah, uh, you were born. That's what makes you my son. You don't do things to become my child. And because you are my child, you are entitled to whatever meager things are left when I'm done in this earth. I'm a pastor. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I don't know how you pastors live here in Carolina. You're riches. You get paid in gold bullion, right? The conference sense like brings trucks full of, yeah, anyway. Where I live, um, there won't be much, but it's his and Allie's. There's their inheritance. Why? Because they're my kids. So when this guy asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus begins to play with him. Oh, the list. He quotes the Torah. He quotes not even Exodus. He quotes the Deuteronomy version of the, of the moral code. Uh, don't defraud people. Don't kill. Don't lie. And the guy goes, oh, good, because I've been doing all those. I've been keeping the list. Here, this is, I've been doing. I get up in the morning. I've got my list. And this is how I know I'm right with God. Check, 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 check. Oops, missed that one. Tomorrow I'll get that one right. Check, 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 check. Today, perfect. Good? Are we good? But you still can't feel right. Why? Because you're keeping a list, not following the Savior, following 
It's an, it's a, hmm, it's an external righteousness is what Jesus called it. Not an internal righteousness, an implanted righteousness. What Paul is asking us to get to eventually is a righteousness that comes instinctively from our heart. And this is what Jesus is calling us to also. Not just a, um, like, like, a, like a franchised kind of righteousness. You understand? Like a franchise is built from the outside in. You got Taco Bell here everywhere. I got to tell you something. That's not real Mexican food. Where I come from, they look at Taco Bell like, ah, really? My zip code is 50% Mexican. That's not tacos. You can't. And then, and then Taco Bell is constantly reconfiguring what these same ingredients. Enchila Burrito Dilla, Supreme. With, I mean, they're inventing names. <laughs> it's the same stuff. Reconfigured, man, those, those gray beans. <laughs> if you own a Taco Bell franchise right now, and I'm, in, I'm so sorry, I mean, no harm. But you know, sometimes, if you come to Riverside where I live, I'll take you to a real taco shop. And the heart of that operation, there's a person who believes. A person who's, like the heart of the operation is a guy named Francisco, Juan, Pablo, whatever. And he's making one thing, that's tacos, not enchilada burrito de los, de los supremes. He makes one thing. And when you taste it, you'll know this is righteousness. <laughs> this is not a franchise, not built from the outside in. And if you ask him for the recipe, he won't know what to tell you. Why? He doesn't know. It's instinctive. It's been handed down to him. Um... Preamble, still Phil. How long do we have a preamble? When, um, when Jesus says, pray in secret, give in secret, fast in secret, he's saying, don't do it for the applause of people. That's the franchise way of doing it. You build from the outside in, and then you end up like this man here is going, what else do I do? It's not coming from inside of me. So this is what Jesus says to him. Come follow me. And you've done all these things, okay, sell everything you have. And it's less about the stuff that he owned, more about abandoning the life that he found meaning in and thought was making him who he was. The reward and compensation thing I'm telling you about, he was a synagogue ruler. I mean, he's, he's reached the pinnacle of his society. And Jesus is saying, leave that and come and follow me. He doesn't give him a new list of things to do. He says, come <laughs> Become like me. And the only way to do that is to actually follow me. He's emotion, by the way. He's not saying, come stand right here. He's saying, come move with me. Learn from me. Hmm. Learn to behave like me. So eventually one day you won't have to say these words. What would Jesus do? You, you just know. You'll, oh, I did what Jesus would do. Look at me. I'm actually behaving like him. I've been around him so long. So you, you don't do to earn salvation, but there's a specific way to live that Jesus is calling him to, which is only accomplished by following him. What you lack, Jesus is saying, is the sense of, of joy, accomplishment, meaning that only God can give you. And that can only come not from following lists, but actually falling in love with the Savior. 
When I, when I fell in love with, with Shelly, wow, Shelly gets talked about a lot here. Is this being recorded? We recorded this. Let's skip this part. She would call me from Thatcher Hall. You know what Thatcher Hall is. She'd call me in Taj Hall. To know him is to love him. The inscription above Taj Hall entrance. Isn't that what it says? You recruit for something. You should know this. <laughs> she'd call my room and she would say, do you want to go on a walk? Now, do you think I hesitated? <laughs> oh, you know, after night, I feel like I'm just going to hang out here in my room. Absolutely not. Instinctively, I knew. that Just like the disciples were being called by Jesus instinctively, they knew. Yeah, follow him. I want to walk with this man. I would run to Thatcher Hall. <laughs> and I would go not to exercise, which is what she was going to go do. I would go to be with her. You understand? She was going to exercise. She wanted a man next to her to protect her from the dogs. Laugh it up. I'm not much of one, but I am a man. <laughs> and and, and it, was, it was on those walks that I got to know this woman. Uh, I was first in love with her beauty. She radiated. But then on those walks, I began to know what made her happy, what made her sad. The fact that she loves the color periwinkle, which I think is purple, but don't tell her that. She thinks it's periwinkle. One day I, I got to Thatcher Hall and I began to her, talk to her in, uh, in Master Yoda's voice. And within minutes I knew she's not impressed. This does not impress her. Um, so I quit doing that forever. I just don't do it anymore. <laughs> also, the fact that I could burp the entire alphabet had no effect on her. So I quit doing that too. One day, driving her to Hamilton uh, Place Mall, um, I removed the contents from my nose and wiped them under the seat. And I just, I glanced over at her, and she had just looked away at the mirror, at, the, at the her window, and I knew, this shall never happen again in front of this woman. <laughs> She's not giving me a list of things I am to do in order for her to enjoy her time with me. I'm just learning by being around her. And because I want to be with her so much, and because I love her, I will do these things. And guess what? Uh, removing the contents of your nose is not great in public. Anyway. <laughs> what must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't do to inherit eternal life. You are already. You were chosen, says Paul in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. Before your parents knew you. God knew you. So what can you add to that? Nothing. You are chosen. Child of God. Adopted. Those are holy words. Should we marinate ourselves in them daily? And then our behavior will follow. How does a prince behave? How does a princess, a daughter of the Most High, behave in this world? How do we walk? And this, now move to Colossians 3. Oh, praise. praise. And this is what Colossians is getting to. Oh, man. Um, 
Uh, Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Yeah, this is your new place. You, you, this is who you are now. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Too much there to delve into one, just keep going. And now here, here he comes. He, he gets to the list. But not before he's told us who we, who, who we are already in Christ. Not before we know that when our eyes are lifted to Jesus, everything will change. Now he gets to specifics he's going to address. Because he's got to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your evil nature. Sexual immorality. I promise you a sex talk. Here it is. Impurity. Lust. Evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. You're worshiping something other than God. Paul is saying, skip now, because I've used a whole lot of time in preamble. Skip now to verse 18. And, and, and we'll read what Paul is calling the, the Colossian people to and as it relates to their families and their community. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, when we read these words, you know, um, either we twist them terribly. <laughs> Notice Paul didn't say, wives, obey your husbands. He says, submit to your husbands. And the word submit is a word that Paul often uses to describe what we all should be doing with each other. So in other words, and I know the ladies are going to amen a whole lot. And the husband's like, you're destroying my home right now. <laughs> destroying it. Send him mad. Send him back this man where he, from whence he came. Right, so, so the word submit, actually, and this is, by the way, I'm not trying to do, I'm not, I'm not doing disrespectful hermeneutics. Um, I'm not reading the Bible disrespectfully just to get it to say what I wanted to say. This is exactly what the Bible says. The word submit is, is most often used by Paul to describe what we all should be doing with each other. So Paul is basically saying his wives, behave with your husbands like I've told you to behave with everyone. And by the way, the husbands are also required to, to behave this way anyway. It's assumed. Husbands, love your wives. What is Paul doing right now? He's raising the bar from their prevailing culture. Because you know, he'll go on to talk about the kids, children, obey your parents. He says, obey your parents. Um, fathers, do not exacerbate your kids. Treat them like people, like humans. Why? Because they were treating them like property. See, in their, in their, Ro in their Roman uh, province of Asia, um, they were functioning under these assumptions that the kids are your property until they're old enough to actually be people and you're too afraid of them. <laughs> um, and then the women are kind of they're kind of your property, sort of right above the cows and the cattle you own. And Paul is saying, we're going to be better than that. The people of Jesus are going to behave way better than that. And so we hear this, this language from Paul. And Paul is trying to raise this, raise the bar so we're better witnesses, more credible witnesses to the love and the mercy that we've been shown in Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us today? Husbands, submit to your husbands. Good, we do that. We, we understand this. Um, husbands, uh, wives, 
of submit. Husbands, love your wives. We know how to do that. We know that. That's not new to us. But in what ways then, if what Paul is trying to do is raise the bar on his world and his context, can we raise the bar in our world? I need you to stay with me tonight because it's going to get crazy. And this is not just an excuse to talk about what's really important to me right now and what beats in my heart. And it's like a, you know, sometimes we pastors have like a pressure in our chest and like, oh, I'm going to talk about this. And that is, I have this. This is, this is actually from Paul. I've read Paul. I've read Colossians. Now, let me tell you this. I think what Paul is calling us to is purity. Redefining purity in a way that stands so far removed from what the prevailing culture is teaching us now that we actually become the kind of people that God made us to be and credible witnesses. Now, I, this is not the old-fashioned purity sermon. Young people hear me. That, that, don't hear it that way. Paul is, so in a moment we'll come back to this. Paul is also saying, hey, let's raise the bar on what it means to be men and women and married. How can we do that as a people of God in this day and age? How can we reform the meaning of marriage, reform marriage as it exists right now? How can we reform the masculine identity? And how can we reform the feminine identity? Too much to do in one night? Maybe. And if it is, if I see you, if I see you nodding off, we'll pick this up tomorrow. We'll close it and we'll come back to it tomorrow. Maybe on Friday morning when I come, but we can do a, Q, a big Q&A and I'll finish this topic. Purity. Masculinity, femininity, marriage. Let's begin with purity. Here's the issue now in this day and age. Going to, I'm going to teach her on you. 100 years ago, if you don't think that purity is a tough issue nowadays, 100 years ago, a woman reached purity at what age? 120 years ago. Let's say a century ago. At what age? Most often, 15. Okay. If you're living in this country, if you're Anglo, whatever, European, it was actually more like 16. Which is why we have sweet 16s and we have quinceañeras. <laughs> Did you not know this? That's actually why. Um, the, 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 the sweet 16 and quinceañeras, just think of it as, as the same thing, was a time when a woman reached womanhood... And her parents said, oh, you're a woman now. It's time to marry you off. So the party was a way to um, parade you around town so all the available men would go, she's ready. She's a woman now. And then within a few months, you'd be married. I'm not, this is real. This is a joke. It's not a joke. It's real. Um, Sweet 16, same thing. Your sweet 16 party is not that now. We, some of you are horrified going, no. I've been to quinceañeras. <laughs> that is gross. Uh, <laughs> um, how many of you had six, sweet, sweet 16? How many of you had a sweet 16 party? Excellent. Exactly. That's what they did. Your parents did this. They said, she's now a woman, um, except for that you, you probably went through puberty way earlier than that. Um, nowadays, it's actually 11. And this number is actually dropping every year. As a matter of fact, uh, we now have pharmaceuticals designed to prevent the puberty from... The puberty from... I'm a scientist. Um, <laughs> from happening too early. Um, 
So girls are reaching puberty at five, six years old, and we have drugs now designed to prevent that from happening too early. Why is this happening? Who knows, but my wife Shelly has a theory, and she thinks our food supply is completely polluted. Um, Um, so <laughs> I've, I've got a bunch of like organic farmers going, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, it makes you, you know, but it's, it's food for thought, but this is not the subject tonight. I'm just saying, um, so from 15 to 11. Now, like, by the way, I'm going to say some things about the men, but this is, um, I don't have as, as firm as um, data on you as, as the women. Men, the age of financial accountability or financial responsibility, which is about the time that a man is considered a contributor to the community, not just a mm, person who takes from the community. That is, when we went from an agrarian system, that is, most of us were farmers, this is the age at which your dad said, hey, buddy, get out there and begin milking the cows and stuff, because you don't do that, you don't eat. This is, you know, some of you came from that kind of world. It's time. Um, for, for, for men, it was about 12 years old. 12, 13 years old, 100 years ago. Now, <laughs> who knows, right? Um, <laughs> hey, mom, dad, I'm done with college, grad school, and that PhD, and I'm just going to come home and live in the basement and play Halo for <laughs> next 10 years. <laughs> I've got, listen, this is not, this is, this is the truth. I've, I've had men who shave with man voices <laughs> sit in my office at my school. By the way, if you're wondering, a whole lot of this I'm saying tonight has been born out of my desire to really help my young adults I work with every day, okay? So these men who sit in front of me, some of them 22, 23 years old, that have never had a job in their lives, have never gone somewhere and done work and been compensated for that work. Um, right. But 100 years ago, men, you're 12, 13, your dads were telling you, Mom, okay, if your, boys ain't, your voice ain't changed yet, you're going to get out there and work. Look, it's not like a southerner. See, I got, I got a little bit of a... Um, so what age did I say again the women were getting married at? Average? 15, 16. Right. Puberty? hundred years ago? 15, 16. This is a great time to be a youth pastor. The purity sermon is really simple. Some of you are experiencing some changes in your plumbing. If you just, if you just wait a few months, you'll be able to satisfy these needs you're experiencing right now. Right? That was an easy sermon to preach. Uh, find a cold creek somewhere and... Is this too much? Is this too much? No? Okay. <laughs> At what age, again, are we now seeing people get married? What is the average marrying age in this country now? I actually know these numbers for a fact, and it's actually 28. And that number is actually every year rising. Huh? Are you with me now? Okay. So, all right. Also, side note, um, how many households, uh, percentage of households in the U.S. 
who are inhabited by people who have a marriage certificate hanging on their wall or in a file somewhere that is they're married and living together compared to people who are not married living together. Do you know what this number is now? Okay, well, I'll tell you. I love this. Fun with numbers. As of the last census, 53% of Americans, American couples, live together without being married. We're down to now 47% of people who are living together with the um, benefit of a covenant of marriage. Oh, and here's the other part I want to get to, which I think is really interesting. 100 years ago, hey, wait a few months, the purity sermon, pretty easy. How long are they waiting now? Right. Right. Now, some of you young ones, single ones are going, is this message supposed to in some way fill us with hope? And uh, <laughs> what are you doing right now? Um, so what is the math here? You're waiting how long? 17 years. So we're asking people to, do, to wait 17 years and be pure during that time. Wow, that sounds really difficult. Yeah, it is. And so when you hear someone say, nah, it's the same, it's always been the same. It's not always been the same. It's, it's new. This is new in the last 100 years. Um, what else can I tell you? You know what's really interesting about this number here is that it's also dropping. The 47% is dropping every time they do the surveys, the numbers, the census. Um, and so there is one... Um, one social scientist, Phil Jenkins from Penn State, who studies this, and he wrote an article recently that said, at this, at this pace, marriage in this country will not exist in the next 100 years. Right, if we haven't as well, Jesus comes soon, because <laughs> if Jesus doesn't come back in the next 100 years, according to the social scientists, at this pace, we'll lose marriage as, uh, as it is together, like completely. Now, I, here's where it gets really fragile. I'm going to go really slow. This, for me, when I read this, was an alarm. It went off in my head going, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. I live in a state that spent the last who knows how long fighting these huge battles over who can call themselves married. And we have lent our voice to that argument often. Because we're people of the book. And the book says something specific about the word marriage. But on the other hand, we are losing the institution completely. Could this be a satanic diversion? Are you with me? The words of Paul will not be applicable in 100 years at all because there won't be husbands and wives if we don't somehow do something about this. It got real quiet in here right now. So I want to talk about the other business, the possibly 2 to 4% of the population who are always in the news, in the media, because I now believe that is a distraction. What we've been distracted from is the fact that our young adults are not choosing marriage at all. They're walking away from it. Why? Possibly because they've heard it called the ball and chain so long. Settling down. Um, let's have one last night of freedom. So when we speak of it this way, why would they choose it? I don't want it. 
I wouldn't. Um, I asked I ask folks back home. So, so some, of you, some of you are putting two together. Is he saying people should be married earlier? Yeah, I, I may be the only pastor in the earth who's saying this. <laughs> yeah. Actually, if I can convince you to get married, I think it would be good. That's good. Uh, if I convince you of that, hey, let's figure out how to do it earlier. Why? Because every argument that I hear back home, this may not be the same here in the South, but back home, every argument I hear for not or for waiting is a horribly selfish, ungospel reason. There are things I want to experience first. Really? Well, why, why would you want to experience those amazing things without a person that God has given you to spend your life with? Someone's like, ah, man, I hope you're married to the man you're sitting next to because that's a problem. <laughs> hey, here's, <laughs> here's uh, another interesting number. You know how long marriages lasted 120 years ago, according to Phil Jenkins? Now, 12 years. Sorry. I know, I was, I was, is that true? Yeah, women would die in childbirth uh, very often. And so this is why, in the time of Paul, this is what would happen too. Uh, and so when you said something like, till death do us part, the man was going, I'm probably going to be married again. You're probably not going to be here, here for very long. The, marriages were last, the average marriage lasted 12 years. How long do marriages last now? Can you read these numbers, by the way, those of you in the back? I'm just going to tell you. The average marriage now lasts 12 years. It's unchanged. The life expectancy has dramatically increased. Now, women are living way longer than that now, way longer than 12 years. Because they're not dying in childbirth. Figure that out. But for some reason, something in our genetics has been so corrupted that we have not figured out how to stay. I'm sorry, little baby. We have not figured out how to stay married longer than 12 years. And here's a tip, young ones. Young ones. You're going to live a long time if Jesus doesn't come back soon. Because we figured out the blue zone thing, how to eat tofu and all that stuff. You, and, and, and our medis, medis, medical sciences are getting better and better. And now apparently we've all got medicine, medical covers. I don't know. So you may live to be 100, 120 years you're going to be married, if you get married, for 70, 80 years. Not 12. We've got to figure out how to stay married. And, and, and here's, here's probably why we haven't figured out how to stay married longer. Because we are selfish. Because the, the marriage has been so corrupted... What it is and what it's for, um, that it needs to be reformed. Reform simply means reform it, form it again. So we've done purity now. And by the way, if, if those of you who are single in the room are wondering, well, so get back to that. How do we survive that 17 years again? <laughs> um, well, um, here's some, some very unhelpful tips. Um, uh, number one. Um, be, be really committed to this. I have, I have people at home, students at home, who <laughs> overwhelm or overcome with guilt when they hear me talk like this because they're having sex. 
and they come to my office with their Bibles, because I'm students of the Bible. You get serious about the Bible when you want to actually find justification for your sin. <laughs> Pastor, I've been through this Bible. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that premarital sex is a sin. It's prohibited. I got news for you. It isn't. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, it is, yeah, it is. Actually, it isn't. It, it really isn't. Um, specifically, two single people, unmarried, male, female, unmarried, the Bible never says those two people are not to have sex. Now, uh, some of you could say, yeah, when Paul says porneo, it's probably a big umbrella for, for everything, everything that, that is that. But, I don't, but they don't see it that way. They want, I want a specific, I want, like, the people who come to my office and say, find me in the Bible where it says smoking pot is a sin. <laughs> and I don't want, like, cannabis. I want to say pot. Because that's what I smoke. <laughs> I, I asked one person in my office who was saying that. I'm like, are you high right now? No, I am not. I am clean. I have not smoked for six months. Two minutes later, are you high right now? Yes, I am. I am high right now. Well, here's a good tip. So it's making you lie. Making you a liar. So that's a good reason to stop smoking right now. Here's what else the Bible doesn't say. Hey, don't stick toothpicks in your eyeballs like they were olives. Do not eat arsenic. <laughs> Does scripture have to say exactly what you're not to do for it to not be good for you? I No. Some things are externally, observably damaging to you, your body, and your soul. I've had enough people in my years as a chaplain sitting in my office, enough women and men laying on my couch Saying things like, she broke up with me. I am in excruciating pain. Why does it hurt so much? Why does it feel like the oxygen has been sucked out of the earth? Why? Because she's with someone else. See, if you had just had a friendship or whatever with her, it wouldn't feel this way, would it? Your soul got involved because your biological systems got involved. And that's why it's devastating. The Bible doesn't have to say that this is prohibited for me to go, how's it feel? Is it painful? Probably not supposed to. Probably not supposed to. So, um, so yeah, you got to be way more committed than people 100 years ago were. That's basically it. Like way more committed. Every time you fire up a computer, <laughs> you got to be way more committed. Keep your mind, your eyes, your soul clear. And get married earlier. <laughs> not going to solve all your problems, certainly not. But I'm telling you, we are, we are not helping things when we postpone marriage indefinitely. And for selfish reasons. So we got to, you know, so, so the deal is we got to, we got to um, reform, deform, reform mar- the marriage what it is, a purity, marriage, purity, be more committed to it. What is Paul, how do we raise the bar on the marriage thing? Um, here's, here's what's going on. People are not choosing marriage because we have so demeaned it for so long um, that why would they? Why would our young adults, and if you're a young adult here, you're witnessing a, just a complete disaster when it comes to marriage. And now we've got people arguing about who can be married. And again, on the other hand, we've got a complete loss of marriage as it is. How do we redeem this? Well, um, 
120 years ago, we knew why we were to get married, why we needed to get married. I, as a man, would need a woman to help me do the laundry, the cooking. <laughs> Let's be real. This, I mean, bear my children, and, and the more boys she bore me, the better so that the farm could have more hands I didn't have to pay or hire. Um, and when I came in, she was, she'd be in charge of that side of life. And I can't, and so if, if something happened to her, I got to find a new one. Marriage was a, a functional thing. She needed a man because the man provided for her. Uh, provides, pro- provided protection, provision, all the stuff that the man was supposed to provide. How many of you ladies need a man to provide those things for you? Two, three of you. Four of you. There's a husband's going, man. <laughs> hey, at last year, I don't know what it's like at Southern, last year, 65% of our enrollment this year, female. Not one single one of those ladies is preparing to be the person at home doing the washing, the cleaning. They're professionals. They're not, they're not taking $80,000 in loans and then go home and go, what would you like to eat tonight, honey? <laughs> now, this is in no way saying that that's not okay to be, I mean, to do that. I'm just saying we don't need each other anymore. <laughs> I can go to Taco Bell and feed myself. <laughs> or to the frozen aisle at Bilo. <laughs> which was not possible 120 years ago. I know how to cook, so I can defend myself. I can feed the kids. I'm good. We don't need each other for that. So in the absence of this old functional need for each other, what is left? What's marriage for? Now, we look at these expressions of marriage. Like, people, hmm, this is the part where it gets really dicey because, like, I'm not, I I don't, I'm not here to criticize culture, Hollywood. I, I live near Hollywood. I know what's going on there. So I'd rather not spend time calling the dark, dark. You're dark, dark. <laughs> a lot of candles instead going, okay, let's be, let's be the people of the light. Um, so, but, but we've kind of fallen for the notions of reasons to be married that we've been fed by the prevailing culture. Love. Love. There's days when love aren't going to get you through. There's days when commitment, covenant, accountability will. Married for satisfying our needs. Gravity will take its toll. (laughs) We're still good? Too much? Too much, okay. All right. This is my farewell uh, week here at my family <laughs> conference. It's been amazing being with you all. And um, <laughs> here is the most, I believe, amazing opportunity we, the people of God, have been given at this time, at this hour. We can actually explain to the world the reason for marriage. Genesis 2. The two will become one. What does that mean? Well, if you read the Hebrew Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
Why is the same word used to describe what marriage is in Genesis used to describe what God is in Deuteronomy? Because we are, are you ready for this? We are in marriage, experiencing and proclaiming the character of God. Do you want this? I do. <laughs> I do. Um, so we have that. We have, the, um, we have this incredible, I believe, opportunity now to explain to, to a world that's walking away from marriage, hey, don't marry for love, don't marry for money, don't marry for, for the other stuff. Marry for this reason, for the glory of God. When marriage is working like it's supposed to be, we are like, ah, this is, why does it feel like heaven? Um, right. And people look at us and they go, I want that. Exactly. Well, let me introduce you to the other things that go along with this. There's a great God who loves this world, who made it, and sent his son to live here. And he called us to follow him. And he's before all things. And, and he gives us this incredible ability to commit and covenant, make a covenant to each other. We can live for, for 100 years together in this world. And it's, it's so beautiful. When it's bad as hell. <laughs> and that's when they look at us and go, well, if that's what it led to you, if the claims of the gospel did that to you, then I'm good without it. I'm going to be one of the 53%. Are you with me here tonight? Are you with me? Um, raise the bar on purity. Raise the bar on marriage. Let's, let's do marriage better. Uh, get married, kids. Do it. <laughs> so you're like, well, if I had a man... probably should start uh, um, here you know um, <laughs> I should probably go back to scripture and spend some time there um, so maybe tomorrow night if I have time or maybe on Friday morning I'll come back to the masculine identity and the feminine identity now you see here's, here's what I because people say well get married earlier Sam well, what do you mean by that because because point, point out a man who's ready for this. Well, exactly. Uh, because we have allowed men to take their time becoming men. We've invented this era, this stage in life called adolescence, which did not exist 120 years ago. Um, a time for, for young men to figure out how to become men. Guess, guess how long your transition was when you were living 120 years ago. Hey, you're 12. Get out there now. <laughs> no time to figure out how to become a man. You're a man today today um so because we've allowed men to have this incredible long time and now by the way some sociologists are using a term called adultolescence reject that adultolescence is not to be used by us the people of god because this means that we're allowing young men to go into their 20s and their 30s having mom do the laundry uh for them um Absolutely not. What, you know, figure out when you become a man. I'm, my son, I'm preparing him for this. Well, I don't have a perfect family. I'm not a perfect dad. I had a great dad. I'm not a perfect dad. I don't have a perfect marriage. Shelly has tons of things she's working on. Tons. <laughs> so. But I'll tell you this. I'm, I'm trying to do one thing I know we men need, and that is we need to be given rites of passage where we understand when we became men. That, I think, is absent in our prevailing culture. If our men were ready earlier, then marriage would happen earlier. Then all the women who come to my office and go, find me a man. I go, hold on. No, a man. Those are boys. 
oh, man. Here's what I'd love to tell them, men. I'd love to tell them this. Go to church. I mean, go to church. Take a Bible. Guys, take a Bible. Not an iPhone. That's weak. <laughs> a Bible in your hand. Wear a pathfinder suit. Go online, order all the honors you've never earned. Just <laughs> double sash. Make it look like you've hunted bear. <laughs> Go to the front row. Sit on the front row, not the back. And don't look at your phone. The entire service, don't look at that. That's weak. Sit in the front row and don't wait for Rick to say, let's all stand together and praise Jesus, the one who is before all things. Stand a minute. We, we are worshiping. No, you're in the presence of the holy. I, why, why do we have to be told, let's stand and worship together? Why is that? I'm not, I'm not condemning you. I'm just saying, I, I, me, me too. I'll sit. If I'm not told to stand up, I'll sit comfortably. I'll bring whatever's left of my life to God, not the best. So stand the minute the music, the music starts and, and look awkward like the sore thumb. Why is that guy standing in the Pathfinder uniform with a Bible? <laughs> then sing at the top of your lungs. I mean, even if you can't carry a tune, Jesus made it all, just sing it. When you're done, walk downstairs or to the next building, wherever the kids are meeting, and teach the kids to love Jesus. Lead the Pathfinder Club. You want to know what's sexy? That's sexy. <laughs> Axe products, you can't buy enough Axe products to be sexy. <laughs> they lie. They're telling you a wrong story. This right here, when I say this, the women in my, in my campus go, amen. Tell the pastor. That's right. Um, yeah, exactly. So when the ladies ask me, where are the men? I want to be able to say, go to church. They're in the front row. On the front row. Run. Young people, those of you who are single, who keep asking me, they ask me all the time, well, if you want to get married, we're... Where are the good people? Where are the run? You run to Jesus. You run. Sprint to Jesus. And when you've run for a long time, look to your left, to your right. Whoever's running next to you, marry that person. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> God, we know that your spirit can make sense out of a lot of the stuff. And I pray that your spirit tonight may in some way have brought some fruit in this place that can be used by you, Jesus, to make us better witnesses, to make us more whole, make us more loving, more generous, more gracious in this world. I would pray for that tonight, for God, in your son's name, amen.